Thank you and good morning again. I'm Travis, I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal. Thank you for joining us again today. Uh, we are continuing on in our series in the Gospel of Mark, a compact account of the coming of Jesus Christ to redeem the world from the brokenness of sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And we're focusing in now on these very last chapters of the Gospel of Mark uh, on Jesus's making his way toward the cross for our redemption. And this morning we come to focus on the events surrounding what's known as the Last Supper. In our, today, in our text today, we actually have something like four different scenes. Uh, scene one we find in verses 12 through 16, where Jesus and the disciples prepare for the Feast of Unleavened Bread as part of the Passover. Uh, scene two in verses 17 through 21, we see Jesus and the disciples start eating the Passover. Uh, scene three in verses 22 and 25, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, or what you might know as communion. And scene four in verses 26 to 31, the group goes out together to the Mount of Olives and sort of continues the conversation they've been having at dinner together. Together, these four scenes reveal a, a central theme, which is that Jesus came not to go around the pain of our world, but to go through it for our redemption. That's the central theme of our text this morning, that Jesus came not to go around the pain of our world, but to go through it for our redemption. It's a theme that I think is particularly important for life right now, even just this past week where 300 girls were kidnapped from a school in Nigeria. Our world is getting more and more hostile abroad, but also at home as violence has increased against Asian Americans, even elderly Asian Americans here in the States in recent weeks. It's a relevant theme right now for the hostility and the division, the pain and brokenness of our times. And to hear that theme come out from our text and speak to our own hearts, I want us to focus on three things together this morning. First, I just want us to look at these four scenes together to try to understand them as a group. Second, to understand what's happening in those four scenes when we look at them together. And then finally, understanding what does all that mean for us. So looking at the four scenes together, understanding what they mean when we look at them that way, and then what does that actually mean for us? What are the implications of that meaning for our lives today? Before we get into that, I would just invite you to pray with me as we ask God to fill up our time together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking that you would be God to us now, that you would speak into the brokenness and difficulty of our own lives, of the individual hardships that we are facing, of the greater hardship that our world is facing. God, we pray that you would speak in only the way that you can this morning, that you would be real, that you would be present, that you would jump off the page, off the screen, as it were, into the hearts of the brothers and sisters who are listening this morning, of those even who do not know you yet who are listening now. God, would you speak clearly? Would you make yourself known as only you can, Father? Pray that you would do this, that you would be greater than my own meditations or ability to speak, that you would speak, Holy Spirit, as only you can. So we ask that you would come now, be present in this time with us as we seek your face. It's in your Son's name and by your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, let's start then at our first point of focus, looking at these four scenes together. Uh, I want to go through them together for us to get a sense of how they, how they fit together, because seeing them... Uh, fit together will help us understand what's happening in this passage. How do they work together? What do they have to say? 
When we do that, when we look at them together, what we'll see is this Passover feast might have been one of the most beautiful and awkward uh, dinner parties in all of history. Let's take a look at scene one in verses 12 through 16. Jesus gives seemingly supernatural instructions about how the disciples are to go and prepare for their time of having the feast together. Um, that would certainly set their expectations for this feast pretty high. They had to go and find one man carrying a jug of water amidst an entire sea of people, right? As we talked about before, Jerusalem would be overflowing with this, uh, with this amount of influx of pilgrims for the Passover, double, triple its size in people. And so they were supposed to go and find one person in a sea of people, and even though he would stand out because men at that time didn't carry uh, jugs of water, so he would look a little different, but even then you have to find one unusual person in a sea of people that you've never seen before. It seems very clearly that this would require some kind of supernatural miraculous intervention for them to find this guy in such a timely manner that they can actually go and prepare the Passover meal. How would they run into him if Jesus didn't make it so and have enough time to actually prepare? It seems a supernatural intervention would have been required, and so that certainly is going to key up their expectations for what this meal is going to be like if, one, they're going to have a supernatural guidance to find where they're supposed to go, and then, two, when they get there, they're supposed to find the room furnished and ready for them, and they actually show up, and our passage says that they find it as he said it would be, a large upper room furnished and ready to go. That sounds pretty good. If that's how the meal, this infamous uh, high religious holiday would be celebrated, if they're going to start this way, they could only imagine what the actual meal together would be like. Uh, expectations might be at an all-time high compared to any other Passover they have celebrated in their lives. But, scene two, verses 17 to 21, the Passover and the meal gets an unexpected twist. What starts off with high hopes crashes into major awkwardness suddenly. Uh, Jesus, at the very outset it seems, at the beginning or early part of uh, the time together, drops a bombshell on this dinner party. One person in this nice, private, comfortable room would betray him. One of the twelve, it says, one who dips the food into the bowl with him. Someone, in other words, sitting close enough to touch Jesus at that point in time would betray him. I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop in that room as people are just taking bites and... Did, did he just, did he just say betray? One, and people start asking questions of, is it me? Sure, please, I, I hope it's not me. It couldn't be me. And while Jesus doesn't really answer who it will be, what he does say is that it would be better if that person was never born. That is one of the starkest condemnations we hear Jesus give in all of Scripture. So in seconds, we go from enjoying the most celebrated and most treasured, or one of the most celebrated and treasured holidays of the people of God, to one of the most awkward dinners ever recorded in Scripture in the blink of an eye. Suddenly you're just eating, having a good time, and all of a sudden, boom, things change. Could you imagine being at a dinner party like this? You've gone to a private restaurant. There is a private room for you and your group set apart in the back, maybe even upstairs. You're having a nice time. You're, you're really enjoying being with each other. And all of a sudden, someone says something 
that is more awkward than you could possibly imagine, not just because it's an awkward statement, which this isn't an awkward statement here, but because of what it implies, that now suddenly brokenness has entered into this room that was only filled with joy up to this point. You might be sitting in the back trying to find a waiter going, You might be feeling, if you were the disciples, some intense awkwardness at this point. But the meal doesn't end here. No one brings the check, so to speak, at this point in time because we move on to scene 3 and verses 22 to 25 where Jesus pivots from this bombshell revelation to one of the most beautiful moments in all of Scripture. The institution of the Lord's Supper, of communion, where he gives the bread that signifies his body and he gives the wine that signifies his blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins to his disciples. And all of this is taking place, again, for context during the Passover meal, which actually gives us a great leg up on understanding what Jesus is doing here when we see it in that context. It helps us understand what's happening in this passage actually as a whole when we understand that communion was given at the Passover meal. And to give you some context on, on what that meal looked like and how that starts to unravel, uh, I'm sorry, reveal all this for us, um, as one commentator, Robert Stein, explains, at the outset of the Passover meal, the youngest member of the group would ask, why is this night different than other nights? This was followed then by the host, in this case it would be Jesus, recounting the events of the Passover, the events of the Exodus to the group. And in the retelling of the Exodus from Egypt by Israel, the symbolism of the various elements of this Passover meal they were eating together would be interpreted. Uh, the Passover lamb that was the centerpiece, the focal point of this meal, represented the blood of the sacrificial lamb that protected the people of Israel from the angel of death. The unleavened bread represented the quickness of God's intervention on their behalf and how they had to eat it in haste because they were leaving so quickly. Uh, a bowl of salt water that was part of the meal represented the tears shed in bondage and in the crossing of the Red Sea. There were bitter herbs present at the Passover meal, and those represented the bitterness of captivity and slavery. And there were also four cups of wine that represented the four promises of God to the people of Israel in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7, where he says, I am the Lord, and one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Two, I will free you from being slaves to them. Three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And four, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Those four blessings were represented in those four cups. And within the reliving of the Passover experience in this meal, Robert Stein says the celebrants would recall the covenant that God made with Abraham and renewed with Isaac and Jacob and now Moses. The covenant to be their God and to deliver them from the pains of sin and suffering and death. So it's against the backdrop of this remembered deliverance of the Exodus in the context of this meal that remembers that, that Jesus institutes communion. In light of that, what he's doing there becomes very clear because he is showing that there would be now a new Exodus. There would be a new deliverance of the people of God. From what? From Roman occupation? No, that would be too a small a price for the Son of God to pay. 
No, it would be this time from the enemy of both the people of God and those who were not yet the people of God, from Israel and from Rome, from the enemies of all people at all times and all places, which is humanity's slavery to sin and death. That enemy is what Christ came to bring an exodus from. And though the bread and wine uh, were merely signifying his body and blood, they were pointing forward to, as they do now, pointing back to that death that Christ would die on the cross in our place to open up that new and living way that we, a people in bondage to slavery of sin and death, would be brought out from that bondage to life and fullness, to be redeemed in a word, just as Israel was redeemed in the Passover. And Christ is the focal point of that redemption. He becomes, as we see in this meal, the sacrificial lamb that would spare their lives. He is to be what would let God pass over their sins and the sins of all who believe. In this moment, at the institution of communion, the disciples are witnessing the start of a new and greater covenant, a new and greater deliverance from a greater and older enemy. That's a once in an age kind of moment, a beautiful moment. But in scene four, Jesus shifts gears again, verses 26 to 31. As the meal concludes and they go out and continue their conversation on the Mount of Olives, Jesus drops another bombshell. All of the disciples would fall away, as the text says. In other words, they would all abandon Jesus. And Peter actually would do so, uh, crashing out in spectacular fashion, not just abandoning Jesus, but denying that he even knew him three times before the evening was out. So not only would Jesus die, that's exactly what his betrayal would mean because he's going to be handed over to these leaders that Mark has been telling us for chapters now have been looking for a way to kill Jesus. So betraying him to these leaders means Jesus is going to die. So not only is Jesus going to die through this betrayal, now he's revealed that he is going to die alone. That those who have been closest to him, who have given up the most for him, will ultimately give him up in the end. He would be deserted by the very people that he just shared this beautiful meal with. So our passage seems to close with perhaps a greater awkwardness than it had just two scenes earlier. So to move into our second focal point here, what's happening in all this as we see these scenes come together? As we just saw, there's this interplay, this back and forth between a joyful announcement and bitter pain and a joyful institution and darker pain. We move from one scene to another, and that starts to reveal what's really going on here. In scene one, we celebrate that we, we prepare to celebrate the Passover. In scene two, it's revealed that someone will betray Jesus. In scene three, he invites the disciples to take part in this new covenant. In scene four, he tells them they will all fall away. Back and forth, joy and pain, celebration and bitterness. When we start to recognize this back and forth, we can see this whole passage actually as a microcosm of the Passover and the Passover meal itself, full of joy and bitterness as the Passover was, full of joy and bitterness as the Passover meal itself was in the elements of the wine as the joy and the herbs as the bitterness, the salt as the tears, pointing back to the Exodus that this passage subtly reenacts. 
the joy of the promises of God in Exodus 6, 6 through 7, those four promises originally represented in the four cups of wine here get expressed in the joy of the one cup of the new covenant of Christ's own blood. Here the bitterness of the herbs and the tears of the salt water in the Passover meal are expressed through the betrayal and the abandonment of the disciples in the face of Jesus' greatest hour of need. All of these things start pointing towards this new deliverance in Christ, this new Passover, this new exodus that would come through his sacrifice as the lamb that lets God pass over sin. That's the essence of this passage. Joy mixed with pain, life coming through sacrificial death. It is the exodus played out here before us in four scenes. This is what's happening. It is a small unfolding of what Christ's deliverance will actually look like. It will be joy amidst bitterness and pain. It will be a path to life leading through death. This would be the path of redemption for God's people, the path that leads through him. And just as with the exodus from slavery in the Passover, the bitterness and pain in Christ's story does not upend that plan. Rather, it is the plan. The road to joy and deliverance leads through the bitterness and suffering. It's why Christ came for this, to face alone the bitterness and pain that is ours due to sin, the bitterness and pain that we avoid at all costs, fleeing like the disciples rather than being caught near God, denying him rather than losing the ability to be our own God. Christ came to face that bitterness, and not just to face it, but to overcome it. Not to go around it, but to step into it, to be crushed by it and killed by it, so that you and I might live. So that we might finally be set free from what we could never be free from on our own, what we didn't want to be free from on our own by this new and greater Passover, where God passes over our sins, visiting the penalty for them upon Christ, this, Pas this Paschal Lamb, this Passover Lamb in our place, the firstborn of heaven, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On him God laid our sins so that you and I might pass out of bondage. That's what this passage shows, that Christ didn't come to go around the pain. Christ did not come to go around the pain of the world. He came to go through it for you. The road to joy and deliverance in Christ's new Passover led inextricably but willingly through the pain and bitterness of this moment, the pain and bitterness of the cross, that he might find you on the other side, not around the pain but through the pain for you. That's what our passage shows this morning. Christ facing it and moving directly towards it that he might have you, that he might bring you into this greater exodus, into this greater freedom. So what does that mean for us then in our final focal point here? Two things. It means joy amidst bitterness and love. Joy amidst bitterness and love love. First, joy amidst bitterness. If you want to know if you will find God in the pain and suffering that you're going through right now, 
in the pain and suffering that you went through last year, that you are starting to go through this year, if God will show up for you in the pain and suffering of your anxiety, where you can't put down the thoughts that seem to be crippling you, if God will show up for you in the depression where you feel like you just can't get out of bed, where things are falling apart and not getting better, if God will show up for you in the sadness and grief of having lost someone close to you this year, and having lost relationships that matter to you this year. If God will show up for you in the addictions that oppress you again and again that you just can't escape. If God will show up for you in the faults that keep complicating and messing up your life. If you want to know if he's really committed to you in the midst of all that is plaguing you right now, you only have to look at the cross and see there that God's path to you has always led through pain and suffering. God's path to you has always led through pain and suffering. The cross shows us he was never going to go around our pain. That was not an option. It was not why he came. Rather, pain and brokenness were exactly why he came. It was the destination. All your problems, all your hurt, all your disappointments and failures, these are not the things that get in the way. They are what he came for. They are what he came to fix, what he came to heal, what he came to address and redeem for you. So if you're asking him to meet you in your pain and your brokenness right now, you're only asking him to meet you where he already planned to go, where he already went. Why should you be afraid that he won't show up now in the place that he has already planned to go, in the place that he loves to go, the place that he's desired to go? Let me put this to you differently. As a native Californian, as someone who grew up going to In-N-Out, as someone who pridefully worked at In-N-Out, that crown jewel of hamburger stands, if you invited me to show up at In-N-Out, I will go. I don't care when. I don't care why. I don't care if I just ate. I will go. Only so much greater and so much more beautifully. God desires to be in the place of pain and suffering, in the place where we are, that he might find us there. You are not asking him to do something against his will. You are inviting him to show up a place that he has already desired to go, a place he wanted to go before you invited him to go there, a place he set out as a plan to go before you even knew you would need him to meet you there. You are only inviting him to go somewhere where you find him already waiting for you. That's what happens in our pain and suffering when we invite God to meet us there. We find that he is already waiting for us. It's not a question of whether he will show up. Like the disciples, though, we may not understand what it will mean, what it will take for him to get there, for us to get there with him. But he is going and he is bringing us there just the same. And actually, he doesn't need you to understand how you will get there to take you there and to bring joy into your bitterness and pain. Like the disciples in this passage, Jesus was going to the place of pain, to the place of redemption, whether they understood how he would get there or not. He was going. He didn't need them to understand. He was telling them, not so they would help, but so that they would know. Because he was committed, he was capable, and he was in control of what would happen. 
He's not asking them to save themselves any more than he is asking you to save yourself and your pain and your frustration and your bitterness this morning. He's not dropping little breadcrumbs, hoping that you will find the clues and follow the trail. Jesus tells the disciples that one of them will betray him, not so they can figure out the clue and stop the pain, but so that when the pain comes, they would know that he knew and that it was part of the plan. He tells them that his blood will be poured out to deliver them from sin, not so they could object, but so that they could know that it was part of the plan. He tells them they will all fall away, not so that they could try harder and save themselves, but so that when it happened, they would know it was part of the plan. So too in our lives. Knowing God is in control, knowing he is committed to bringing joy amidst the bitterness and pain of your life. He tells you these things, that he will come, that he will meet you there, not so that you will be spared pain, but so that you will know that it is part of the plan. That your pain, your bitterness, your suffering, these things are part of the plan. Do you know that God this morning? Do you know the God who doesn't need you to save yourself, but who makes even the worst aspects of your life submit to his plan, whether you understand them or not? Do you know this God who is bringing you there, who will meet you there because he already is there, because he already went there in the cross? Do you know that God who doesn't need anything from you, but who delivers you from what ails you? Do you know that God this morning, the God of this greater Passover, this greater Exodus? Do you know him? Or do you not? Here's a moment of application for you. How would knowing this God, who makes even pain and bitterness work for his plan, change your daily life? How would your day be different if you lived like he was committed to meeting you in the pain and frustrations of those moment-by-moment -moment circumstances? How would my reactions change when I'm at work and something goes the way that I don't want it to go? How would I respond differently if I know that God will use this pain, that it is part of the plan, that he will meet me in these things? How might I react differently? How might I react differently with my friends or my family when things don't go the way that I want them to? When I lose one of them, when some part of our relationship breaks or has a deep awkwardness, maybe even deeper feeling than what we saw in our passage this morning, how do I respond if I believe, if I have committed the fullness of my soul to the conviction that God will meet me in that brokenness, that it is not against the plan, that it is part of the plan and God will only work through these things for the good of those he loves loves, as Paul says in Romans 8. How will I change? Will I be able to relax more? Will I have the ability to slow down my speech, to speak more kindly and gently? Because I'm not running around scared and frightened that I won't have what I need, because I am convinced that lose what I may, I will have him in the end, and in having him, I will lack no good thing. Isn't that what the psalmist says? Apart from you, Lord, I have no good thing. What if that was your conviction, that lose what I may, just as Job lost everything that he had, and the pain and the bitterness was part of God's plan to show him that all he needed in the end was God? What if you lived with that conviction for your dreams, 
maybe the dreams that are not coming true, that never came true, that never will come true, and that bitterness and pain of having a dream deferred. What if you believe that God was in the midst of that pain and bitterness, that it was part of the plan, that it was not an unforeseen event, that he was in control, that he was committed to you, that he was capable of doing something about it, and he had actually done something about it long, long ago. I want to encourage you to dig around that question this week. How would my life look different if I believed in this God, the God who makes even pain and bitterness work for his plan? How would that change my life? But I want us to see one more implication of this passage, not just God working to bring joy amidst the pain and bitterness of our world, of our lives, but also to see love. To see Jesus' love for us shown in this passage, how so? How do we see that revealed for us? We see it, I think, because Jesus is in control here. He sees all that's going to happen. He knows that one of his closest friends is going to betray him. He knows that all of his friends will abandon him. He knows that his life will end in a brutal fashion because someone has betrayed him that he was so close to. Yet he has this meal. He shares this time with these people that he knows these things about. He knows all of this. He knows that they are going to bail on him in a matter of hours, that he will be sold out already by one of these people in a matter of hours. And he sits down in these last hours that he has, and he shares this most special meal with these people, with them. He saw their divided hearts. He wasn't confused or deceived by that. He saw their future failures. Our text spells that out. Even their stubborn unwillingness to listen to him in the moment when they can't help, when Peter can't help but argue with Jesus about what Jesus is telling him will happen. He loved them just the same. He entered in with them. He spent time with them. He drew near despite these things. Not because he didn't know them. Likewise, he sees our betrayal, our stubbornness, our divided hearts. He sees the ways that we betray him and sell him out day in and day out, moment by moment, for small, passing little pleasures, for satisfaction and our own personal self-fulfillment, for a little quick financial gain here or there, for a little entertainment or gratification, for a little numbing of whatever feeling it is that we don't like in that moment or the ways that we spitefully try to pay him back for what we feel like he did to us. He sees that betrayal. He sees the ways that we're so stubbornly sure of our selfless devotion to him that we are unable to be corrected in the moment that we're actually on the verge of walking away from him. Is that you, maybe this morning? So confident that you couldn't possibly be wrong about the spiritual state of your life and yet possibly never being closer to being so far from what's right. He sees that stubborn devotion that we claim to have will be proved to be oh so tenuous only a moment later in the words that we use with a spouse or a friend or a roommate, in the words that we use with our classmates or our kids or our friends, in the way that we hide our faith from our friends at work or at school or in our neighborhood and friendships 
because we are selfishly more afraid of their rejection or what might happen to what we have with them than we are of what will happen to them if we don't. He sees this, and he also sees the division of our hearts, where we would surely give up everything for him, even if no one else would, like Peter says, unless it means we have to give up our self-interest when someone asks us to do something we don't want to do. When we're called to spend time with someone from our community group that we don't get along with naturally. We want to give Jesus our undivided devotion unless it means giving up more of my time, more of my money, more of my attention, my patience, my forgiveness than I want to give up. Unless it means following God in a way that doesn't let me be God when I want to be God, that doesn't let me call all the shots I want to call. I'm absolutely committed except for those scenarios. Is that you this morning? All in until you're not all in. Even if that is you, even if all those things are you, God sees that and he draws nearer still. He shows you his love. He offers you his body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Again, he's not looking for you to save you. He's not waiting for you to clean up your act, to become the perfect person. That's why he came, because you never would be that person if he didn't make you that person. To save you because you couldn't save yourself. You didn't want to save yourself. He sees how you are in your brokenness better than you do, and yet he still moves in. That's how the Apostle Paul says the gospel comes to us, not when we are ready for it, but when there was nothing in us that wanted it. He moves to us when there is nothing in us that would move towards him. That's the God who pursues you. That's the God who leans in, who gives until it hurts him, that he might show you just how much he loves you, just how much this is not about you saving you, but about him loving you, about how it's always been about him loving you from the beginning, how sin is always about taking you away from that love, deceiving you to think that that love was never there and his redemption is about his commitment to show you that whatever sin might say I will overcome it because I will have you back that's the love of God the God that will pursue you no matter what how would your life change likewise if you live like Christ sees absolutely all of your junk and draws nearer to you still all your brokenness all your messes, all your failures, and still moves in. Like he knows what you think and what you said yesterday, what you said this morning. Like he knows what you wanted, what you hated, what you loved. And he still hands you a piece of bread and says, this is my body given for you. And he hands you the cup and says, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins knowing full well that you don't deserve it, but desiring to give it all the more so. Do you know that Jesus? That Jesus who didn't come to go around the pain of our world, of your life, but through the pain into it to bring you unfailing redemption. Do you know that Jesus whose power makes suffering simply part of his plan? Do you know the Jesus who draws near to stubborn, divided, broken hearts. Because here he is in our passage this morning. Receive him today. Whether you've never known him 
or whether you feel like you've known him for years, receive him anew and put your hope in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have entered into the pain that we might have life, that you chose to suffer rather than lose us, even though we had nothing to offer you, even though we never bring anything to the table, God, and we just can't fathom that. But thank you that that's your commitment, that you don't need us to understand in order to save us, that you are committed to saving us, whether we understand how that works in our hearts or not, that you are just committed to bringing us home. But God, we confess all the ways that we have abandoned you, that we've lived like that's not really who you are, that you're the God who ignores our pain, not the God who came to heal it, not the God who came to deal with it. God, would you forgive us for the ways that we have thought you are, not who you really are? God, forgive us for the ways that we've tried to take control, the ways that we've been stubborn and haven't wanted to listen to correction, haven't wanted to have the pride in our hearts checked and brought into the light, haven't wanted to face these things. God, would you change us and give us the courage to face them? Courage born out of your love for us, a love that moves to us precisely when you find us as we are in this moment, not when we've cleaned ourselves up. God, would you rescue us from ourselves? Would you be our Savior who meets us in the pain of our day-to-day lives and teach us to live like that's really who you are and we can really trust that you're not only going to show up there, you're already there. Father, do these things for us now. We know that we are only asking you to do what you have already decided and delight to do. In your Son's name and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I invite you to join with us in singing now to this God that we have.